may be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 133. If you look in your bulletin insert, there is a place where it's printed off for you and it has three points for us to consider today. Pastor Tony set the bar high by putting a 10-point sermon out there the other week. I only have three verses to work with today, so we're going to keep it to three points. Psalm 133 is a song of a sense, a psalm of David, according to the title that we have. And this title, uh, or this uh, phrase, a psalm of a sense, is used to describe Psalms 120 through 134. It's a section in the hymnal that was used by God's people, most likely when they gather together for some of the feasts that God called His people to go to. The Passover, for example. People from all through Israel would join together and converge upon Jerusalem to the temple or the tabernacle to come and worship together. Together. The unity of God's people on display as they worship the one true God. How fitting it is for the theme of one of these songs of ascent to focus the worshipers on unity, the unity that brothers and sisters share together. Following along as I read Psalm 133, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we consider this chapter of unity, as we consider the closing of this uh, series of sermons on the subject of Christ-commissioned unity, I pray that we would understand and reflect upon the unity that You've given us in Your Son, Jesus. Thank You for the display of unity that we see so beautifully before us in this psalm. Lord, I pray that it would not just be in the poetry and song of Your church that we would hear of unity, but that we would see it in this congregation, both within these walls and outside of these walls, as we share that unity with other believers in Jesus Christ, as we demonstrate to the watching world the power of the gospel to reconcile us to you and to reconcile us to one another. We thank you for the communion that we share with you through the sacrifice of Jesus and the communion we share with one another, the communion of the saints, that bond that we have in unity and love. Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus clearly on this command of yours, this powerful presentation of the gospel living itself out in our day-by-day relationships. We pray that our unity would be Christ-empowered, Christ-glorifying. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. I think it's fair to say that unity is such a foreign thing to us in our world today. You just turn on whatever news source that you use to find out what's going on in the world, and you can look at the world news, 
You can look at the national news, you can look at the local news, you can look at politics, and you will see division, disunity, acrimony. Even this morning, just clicking on what's happening here in our own country. It seems like news reports of conflicts amongst people in crowds demonstrating with violence and fists and throwing things at one another only happened halfway around the world from us, but they happen here among people that we could walk next to on the road and not even know, that we could work together with them, go to school together with them, and yet there is such disunity and discord. It makes you sick sometimes when you just see how man against man, woman against woman, the fights and the quarrels, the disunity. And yet, as we see in our world this disunity, this dark black drop is what comes before us so that we can see the beauty and the glory of the unity that Christ has given His life that we would have, the unity that we ought to display, that we're commanded to display as His people. Here in Psalm 133, we have beautifully described in poetic language what that unity looks like. And I want to look for lasting unity first. It starts with the first word of the psalm, behold. That word behold means you can see it. It's not just talked about, it's not just thought about, but it's seen, it's visible. If you can behold it, it's there. It's tangible. It's real. It's not a dream. Unity, dwelling in unity, ought to be something that we can see recognizable as a spectacle amongst believers. One commentator said, Behold, it is a wonder seldom seen, therefore behold it. It may be seen, for it is the characteristic of real saints. Therefore, fail not to inspect it. It's well worthy of admiration. Pause and gaze upon it. It will charm you into imitation. Therefore, note it well. God looks, with, God looks on with approval. Therefore, consider it with attention." Look, behold. You know, I think of a child when they're exposed to some wonder of creation or some spectacular sight, and they tug on your arm and they say, look, look, look. We need to enter into the excitement of a child to see what unity and dwelling with unity is such a beauty to behold. And the the psalmist richly paints this picture for us because We need to dwell in it. Do you see? Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. This needs to be a constant, continual, abiding unity. Not that unity that is just the uh, controlled peace that happens for a brief period in the back seat when you threaten your kids, don't fight, let's just get to grandma's house, and I don't want to hear a word out of you. That's not brothers dwelling in unity. That's just putting up with each other for a period of time. And, you know, we can hold our nose and kind of get through it and just decide we're going to muscle our way through, but that's not the kind of unity that God wants for His people. God wants for His people to dwell in unity, that it would be continued, lasting, enduring, persevering, It's not just an action. 
its dwelling, it becomes a, a habit of unity, a character trait of God's people, a characteristic of you as a child of God is that you would dwell in unity with your brothers. Lovel, loving, humble, kind, gracious, merciful. Throughout this whole series on Christ Commission Unity, we've looked at what promotes unity, what, what can uh, draw us away from unity, what can poison that unity that we're called to have. One of the interesting things that I came across was a little was a book by a Puritan author, Thomas Brooks, called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And you know what, this, what Satan's job is. Satan's job is to accuse the brethren, to divide us, dismember us, to keep us from being effective witnesses of the unity that God saved us to. He is anti-Christ in the way that he is trying to divide because Christ has saved you to be one to be united, to be connected under the one head Jesus Christ to one another in the body. So Satan's devices and schemes, like C.S. Lewis would write about into the screw, screw tape letters, all sorts of devices in order to divide us, separate us. But precious remedies are what Thomas Brooks came up, up with to help us to combat so that we would dwell in unity. First, he says, and these are paraphrased somewhat, dwell more upon one another's graces than upon one another's weaknesses and infirmities. Accentuate the positive. Think about the graces that people have in their lives and celebrate them. Two, dwell upon those commands of God that require you to love one another. This was not a suggestion. This is a command. Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Lay down your life for your brother. Three, dwell more upon these choice and sweet things wherein you agree than upon those things wherein you differ. Can we focus on those things that we share in common? And particularly, the major things that we share in common. Sometimes it's easy for us to quibble and debate over maybe even fine points of theology and miss on some of the things that, we, that are great and amazing that we do agree on. That's not to compromise the truth. Don't hear me saying that but those things which unite us rather than those that divide us. Fourthly, he says, dwell upon the miseries of discord. Now, this is a real short section because I don't think he wants us to dwell on it too long, but just long enough for you to say, I don't want to go there again. I hate that feeling when I'm not at peace with someone else, when there's discord between us, and that will drive us towards pursuing unity. Fifthly, he says, be the first one to make peace when there's a conflict. How quick are you to go make peace? Are you of the attitude sometimes that, well, when they realize how they hurt me, they will get around to coming and talking to me, but I'm not going to give them the satisfaction of me stooping to their level and talking. No. Jesus stooped to your level. Him who was without sin humbled himself to the point of death, death on the cross, you can humble yourself enough as a sinner to confess your sins to someone else. Run to be restored to someone who you've sinned against. Sixthly, saints should join together and walk together in the ways of grace and holiness so far as they do agree, making the Word their only touchstone and judge of their actions. Pray together be in delightful conversation together, mourn together, rejoice together according to the Word. How do you dwell in unity? You've got to be together. 
You've got to be together in all circumstances and seasons and for different reasons. Just be together. And lastly, he says to labor to be clothed in humility. If you want to dwell together in unity, it's going to take a lot of humility. He says humility honors those that are strong in grace and puts two hands under those that are weak in grace. Satan has his devices, and we need to be ready to fight for unity so that we could dwell in it, so that the world would behold it. Now, consider verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 1 again. We're not moving yet. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Good and pleasant. I wish that the translators of the ESV would have included that one missing word that's actually there in the Hebrew, how good and how pleasant it is. It's repeated in the original, and I think it helps us to keep in focus that it is how good and how pleasant. It's not how good, oh, and it's pleasant, or how pleasant, and it's actually good. These two are put out together with equal force. One commentator said, uh, no one could tell the exceeding excellence of such a condition, as so the psalmist uses this word, how, twice. Behold, how good and how pleasant. He does not attempt to measure either the good or the pleasure, but invites us to behold for ourselves, for a thing to be good is good, but for it also to be pleasant is better. All men love pleasant things, and yet frequently happens that the pleasure is evil. But here, the condition is as good as it is pleasant as pleasant as it is good, for the same how is set before each qualifying word. Let's look first how good it is. This word good is used in Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. It's good as God ordered it. It's the goods that are used in the days of creation. He looked at what He had made and He said, it is good. It's right. It's fitting. It's the way it ought to be. How pleasant it is. Pleasant is used in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Unity is pleasant. And that's great. But unity is also good. And what a wonder it is when they're both together when what's good is pleasant. Think of it in terms of uh, food choices. We all got choices to make regarding food. Eat it. It's good for you. Sometimes is like a little persuasion for you to get over the fact that it's not all that pleasant. I put red beets in this category. Very rare occasion can I ever imagine that I have eaten red beets. Now, you all have different opinions on this, I'm sure, but pick that particular food that you, you know it's good for you, it's just not pleasant. Now, on the other hand, donuts. Can we all agree that donuts are pleasant? Oh, I love donuts. Good, tasty donuts. Are they good for me? Eh, not so much. But what a wonder it is when you have something that is both good and pleasant. Think of that honey crisp apple that you had, that gala apple. Every variety of apple today seems to be just as fresh and crisp and sweet and tasty. And guess what? It's good for you too. When something is good and pleasant, we rejoice. 
Can you imagine that? That's what unity is. Unity amongst the brothers here is good and pleasant. That's a blessing from God, that what is good would also be pleasant for us. Now, the psalmist, David, uses a few illustrations for us. He's used words like good and pleasant. He now wants to give us some word pictures, some illustrations to just kind of paint for us. What does this dwelling in unity look like? First, the oil. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Oil. Anointing oil. This is a special oil. First, as you look in the Old Testament, Psalm 45 tells us about the joy of oil. It's a symbol for festivity, gladness, joy. Psalm 45, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. In Isaiah 61, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. Oil is associated with gladness, and I think dwelling in unity is a gladness that we can rejoice in. Oil that is sweet-smelling. In fact, the very specific oil that was used on Aaron, the high priest, and his family is described in Exodus 30, starting in verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hint of olive oil, and you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. This is a sweet-smelling oil. That sweetness is pervasive. It, it, it reaches out. Yesterday, I was going to pick up a salad at the grocery store, and two aisles across from me, I could see out of the corner of my eye, there was somebody walking into the store as I was walking into the store. And I could tell you which way the wind was coming. It was from her to me because I could smell this perfume just overwhelming me. And we were outside, and I'm thinking I better time it to get to the door before she does because I don't want to be in that enclosed space with all that perfume. Okay, sweet-smelling perfume, good-smelling perfume. Imagine that is the unity that we share together, and it's a beautiful aroma. It's sacred, oil that is sacred. In, again, Exodus 30, it says, it shall be a holy anointing oil. With it, you shall anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the table and all of its utensils, the lampstand and all of its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the basin and the stand. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve as priests you shall say to the people, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It's a sacred thing, a holy thing. And so holy that often the laws of cleanness and uncleanness would dictate that if something who is clean, someone who is clean, touches something that is 
unclean, the clean person becomes unclean. Here, with this oil, as it is put on all these utensils and basin and stand, whoever touches them will become holy. I hope that the dwellers of unity that are gathered together here would represent for people looking from the outside, there's something supernatural about that. There's something different. There's something good, something holy. And that when they come into touch with that, that it would infect them. It's for a special use. It shall not be poured out on the body of an ordinary person. You shall make no other like it in composition. It's holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. This is genuine oil that had to be certified, used only on Aaron and his sons and in the tabernacle or the temple, and it couldn't be used for other things. It is the genuine article, the real deal. Don't make any imitations or copies of it. Isn't that how our unity should be? Let your love be genuine. Let that unity be real. Finally, this oil runs down. You see it running down? It's running down on his beard. It starts on his head, running down on his beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. It doesn't stay where it's put. It keeps flowing. It keeps moving. It, it reaches out. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod. And the ephod, you shall take the breastpiece and gird him with skillfully woven band of the ephod. You shall set a turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. This special anointing ceremony that was conducted when God's people gathered together and they were dwelling with people that were from the north and the south and the east and the west, gathered all together for this service, they got to see this special time of unity when that anointing took place. Hey, remember last year when we were here and that anointing took place? What a blessed thing it is for us to be together and connected. And that starts with the leaders and works its way down. It starts with the head and, and works its way through. And I'm not trying to symbolize this too much, but do you realize that we have to be united as leaders before we can see those who we lead be united? We see that in the church. We see that in our families, moms and dads. You've got to be united as husband and wife before you can ever expect your home to be truly united. We want to see that run down to go forth. That's the imagery of the oil. Now the dew is described. It says, It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Mount Hermon. Here's what Wikipedia says, the facts. The mountain forms one of the greatest geographic resources of the area. Because of its height, it captures a great deal of precipitation and in a very dry area of the world. Mount Hermon has seasonal winter and spring snowfalls, which cover all three of its peaks for most of the year. Meltwater from the snow-covered mountains' western and southern bases seeps into the rock channels and pores, feeding springs at the base of the mountain, which form streams and rivers. These merge and become the Jordan River. Additionally, the runoff facilitates fertile plant life below the snow line, where vineyards and pine, oak, and poplar trees are abundant." 
That's the facts. Now, listen to the description of a traveler from 1867 who studied and lived at the base of that mountain for a time period. He says, unlike most other mountains which gradually rise from lofty tablelands and often at a distance from the sea, Hermon starts at once to the height of nearly 10,000 feet from a platform scarcely above sea level. This platform, too, the upper Jordan Valley and the marshes of Merom, is for the most part an impenetrable swamp of unknown depth, whence the seething vapor under the rays of an almost tropical sun is constantly ascending to the upper atmosphere during the day. The vapor coming in contact with the snowy sides of the mountain is rapidly, rapidly congealed, and it's precipitated in the evening in the form of a dew, the most copious we ever experience. It penetrated everywhere and saturated everything. The floor of our tent was soaked. Our bed was covered with it. Our guns were dripping, and dewdrops hung about everywhere. No wonder that the foot of Hermon is clad with orchards and gardens and such marvelous fertility and in this land of droughts. Beautiful picture. It's a place to behold, I'm sure. What did the Israelite have in mind when David wrote about the dew on Mount Hermon? Well, it comes from above and works its way down. It's expansive in its coverage. It's pristine. It's refreshing, born out of snow. It's drenching all that is parched. It's life-giving. It's growth-generating. Now, think about that. In dwelling in unity, if dwelling in unity is described as the Mount Hermon, the, the dews that come on Mount Hermon, the unity that we have amongst one, other, one another is born from above. It should be expansive in His coverage, not in pockets, but throughout the entire congregation, from the oldest to the youngest. It should be pristine and refreshing unity. It should drench us when we're parched. It should be life-giving, growth-generating in our lives, in our congregation. So what's the conclusion here? seems to be tacked on. We get this command to consider how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. We're given the illustration of the oil, the illustration of the dew, and then it just kind of abruptly ends after the third verse. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. God commanded a blessing. That means it's God created, God begun, God initiated. You remember we're called to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace, but God has to create that because it's supernatural work done by Christ reconciling us to God first so that we could be reconciled with one another? For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Where is there? Well, it's Zion. It's the mountain of God. It's the capital city of the king. It's to the temple where sacrifices point continuously to the hope of Messiah, a Savior who would be the ultimate priest, who would offer Himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. The blessing is this, life forevermore. Jesus, the Messiah, has come, 
and He's declared that He Himself is the way, the truth, and the life, life forevermore, that no man comes to the Father except through Him. Life evermore can be yours if you would ju just trust in the Lord Jesus, the commands and the blessing, peace with the Father through the cross of His Son. And now, filled with the Spirit, we have communion with Him and with one another, the good and pleasant unity that He has saved us for. We're about to go to this table, which is the Lord's Supper. We call it communion sometimes. It represents the only way that we can have peace with God. The communion that we share is through the cross of Jesus Christ, His shed blood, His broken body. Yes, we share that communion with God, but this table also represents a unity that we share, a communion that we have of the saints. We share in common this family unity. We share in common this common Savior who reconciles us to one another. And as we celebrate and worship together, we can say how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. Let's pray together. Lord. We thank You for this supernaturally wrought work of reconciliation that brings us in 